every Sunday afternoon, if, unless something's happening, I take a nap. And before I do, uh, if I'm reading something, I read that. But before, before that, I always look up the readings for the next Sunday. So if I'm the preacher, which is most of the time, I read the readings for the following Sunday, and then I begin to sort of think about them starting then. So when I read the readings for this Sunday, I thought, gee, it's kind of slim pickings, which happens from time to time, particularly in the seasons that are green. We have this mini green season now, which is... uh, talks about really the issues of Christian discipleship, the ways and the means, the cost, the nature. And uh, somehow the theme, because it's between Epiphany and Ash Wednesday, though has something to do with the manifestation of the presence of God. And the, the readings this morning are about healing and it affords the opportunity to say some things to you about how Jesus um, understood healing, certainly how the first gospel, Mark, understood healing and it's important and Jesus is a healer. And you can obviously tell that the reading from Second Kings about the healing of Naaman um, is a setup for the reading from the gospel. So I thought I'd say some things generally about that and see what you think about healing. Before that, remember my jag of the last year. It isn't important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. Or my paraphrase of O.C. Edwards, it's not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And another priest whose name I do not know in a sermon someone said to me, which is good, and that is, the Bible is true, and some of it happened. (laughs) So we need to say some things about what goes on in the biblical witness. I read stuff like this, and I see how so much of Christianity, in a way, goes off the rails, overemphasizing one aspect or another, of the life of Jesus or Jesus' ministry and there are certainly Christian groups for whom healing and a whole lot of excitement and and, uh, stuff around that uh, becomes really distracting from the uh, message of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. You know, just as a footnote to this, the end of Mark's gospel Uh, now in most biblical translations, at least the ones Episcopalian uses, uh, puts uh, in in small print that whole section about handling snakes and drinking poison and all of that stuff that's in the the end of Mark's Gospel. And the reason for that is that the most reliable manuscripts do not have it. So I'm thinking there are a whole bunch of people in the mountains of Appalachia getting bit to death by rattlesnakes because they've, they've focused on that particular section of Mark's gospel. It's a little bit ridiculous if they want to know the absolute truth. But since we're Americans and we believe in the secular version of what Baptists would call soul liberty, I assume that in some way they can uh, make those conclu- draw those conclusions if they wish to uh, about that sort of thing. But you know, here's a pernicious side 
of the view that we all need to get our Bibles, clutch them close to the chest, and make up our own interpretations of what it is that we read in there. I think you need to be guided a little bit by what Episcopalians add to this, the centrality of the Holy Scriptures, but also the tradition and our human reason and experience. And what that means is that in all of the traditions, whether they be the Roman Catholic tradition or whether they be the Magisterial Reformation or the uh, Anabaptists, they all have a tradition of interpretation, a hermeneutical principle, to use the fancy term, and how it is that we, we understand that. So I'm just mentioning this because I think we do live in a culture not only that thinks things about this like about the Bible, but also about a whole lot of things. My private interpretation is the one that I'm going to go with. And remember, um, there are more people alive today who believe that we have been visited by aliens from outer space than believe they will collect their social security when it comes time to do so. <laughs> right? G.K. Chesterton said uh, in one of his essays, when people stop believing in God, it doesn't mean they don't believe in anything. It means they will believe anything. <laughs> and that's what we have now. So, I'm just filing that sort of curmudgeon for the week thing by, by title. Let me talk to you now about healing. I read a commentary this week on Mark's Gospel by a well-known a biblical scholar, he's actually been on some of these television shows, you know, like A&E or whatever they have now, even on PBS, Dr. Ben Witherington III. Um, he's a Methodist. He teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary. And he has a, a, a very, very fine reputation. And he wrote this commentary, and he has a section uh, on the healing stories and he summarizes them and I just thought I'd read them to you because I was impressed by it this week when I was preparing the sermon. What the miracle stories, when Jesus does something, remember his healings and his exorcisms are some if not the most widely attested facts in the New Testament. That he did do these things is beyond dispute. But if we follow O.C. Edwards, what, does that, what do they mean? And as near as we can try to find out, what did Jesus mean? So Dr. Ben Witherington says, the healings, the exorcisms can perhaps create an openness to true faith in Jesus, but they cannot create faith. In other words, you don't believe in Jesus because he did all these miracles. There's something else at stake here. A belief in Jesus' ability to perform miracles is a true but inadequate faith in him. The lack of faith can hinder or prevent Jesus from performing all the miracles he might in a given locale. Remember when he's back home? And he could do no mighty work there. I think nowadays in the therapeutic culture that we live in, that would be because there are family of origin issues, don't you think? <laughs> Nobody in your family takes you seriously. None of your family's friends who know you take you seriously. 
I remember one time I was at a wedding and I got up and said something and there were some of my grandparents' friends there, all Christian scientists. And they came up to me, I'd been a priest for 10 or 12 years, and they said, do you do much public speaking in your work? <laughs> you know, occasionally. <laughs> so he could do no mighty work there. He wasn't able to wasn't able to do it. So the resistance that exists in the emotional field is something that can often uh, thwart our ability to do things and to be effective. That's the subject of another sermon, but it came up when I read this third point. The fourth point is miracles can strengthen the faith of someone who already believes in Jesus. And finally, miracles are not the main thrust of Jesus' ministry. He does not normally set out to perform miracles, but rather does so on request, providing sort of a crisis intervention service in this regard. Unlike other healers or exorcists, Jesus uses no chants, no spells, no incantations in performing his exorcisms and healings. He simply speaks the word of power or in some cases touches them and the exorcism or healing transpires. It is the power of Jesus' teaching that gives him the ability to overcome the demonic forces and the forces of sickness. This, by the way, is completely different from all of the famous healers of Jesus' time and before. One, one who's sort of got an interesting name, Tony the Circle Drawer, who was famous. But when he died, he had no followers. I guess he drew a circle first before he started to do some healing or he did something, but he was well known in the ancient Near East around the time of Jesus. There are a couple of others. Rabbi uh, ben Do- Hanina Bendosa. There were a number of others like that. And then subsequent to the Christ event, we had the other uh, people who were considered uh, important. In any case, Jesus is doing these things for a larger purpose. And maybe when you and I begin to think about healing, we might think about our own healing in a larger context as well, or its lack. And what sense do we make out of it? So here's today's gospel. And this is the piece where you're going to get some, I hope I don't lose you. Nancy says, you've got to be careful. You don't give them too much of this deep biblical scholarship. It's just too hard to follow. <laughs> But I'm going to try anyway, with that caveat in mind, because I always appreciate these these warnings. <laughs> uh, in in Greek, lepros is what the word is that this guy has. He comes to Jesus. It, it, it means a skin disease. It does not mean leprosy. We translate it as leprosy, but we now know or have for the last hundred years that leprosy (laughs) as an ailment is a particular thing, and it's called Hansen's disease. And it's a bacillus that causes the skin ailment. It's a very specific thing. 
no leprosy existed in the ancient Near East in the time of Jesus. They didn't know anything about it. They called skin ailments leprosy. So he could have had the heartbreak of psoriasis. <laughs> he could have had eczema. He could have had some other scrofulous disease that uh, caused him to uh, be branded by those who knew him as a sinner. Because remember, we're living in an era, and Jesus is exercising his ministry in an era where sickness was often associated with sinfulness. And particularly, diseases of the skin were considered to be dramatic signs of deeply sinful behavior uh, in him or in his family of origin. So he comes to Jesus and asks him to, be, to heal him and says that he knows that he has the power to do this. Now, here's something else that you, you know. It is true that a person who had a skin disease was thought of as sinful, but within the religious milieu in which Jesus lived, there were some ritual processes whereby you could be periodically cleansed to achieve some species of purity. But these were both time-consuming, embarrassing, and maybe more to the point, expensive. You read even today in this gospel that Jesus tells him to go to the priest after he's healed and to pay the fee and have the public declaration that he's now clean. And in this case, he was healed. So he is really clean. You, won't, you don't see any evidence his skin was, was uh, clear. So he doesn't have the skin disease any longer. So here's some interesting inside scholarship that I think bears on all of this. The most reliable manuscripts of Mark's gospel say what you heard today read to you. Jesus had pity on this man. Or compassion is the other translation. <coughs> and he heals him. But there is a significant minority of manuscripts that say Jesus was angry. It's an alternative reading. Ben Witherington says, well, gee, suppose we take that one. Because here's the reason why this is, who cares? Well, why were there scribes who wrote that? Unless there was a significant manuscript tradition or oral tradition that said angry instead of compassion. Why would you embarrass Jesus by repeating that? Unless you felt keenly that you were being a faithful transmitter of his words. So why was he angry? Was he angry at being interrupted? Was he angry at a religious system and a cultural milieu in which people were considered to be outcasts and sinners because of these skin diseases and had to go through an enormous ritual process over and over again to be able to be even present in regular society? Was he angry because he knew what this guy was going to do, which caused him no end of difficulty and annoyance? Dunno. 
But it's an interesting speculation in terms of interpretation. Having compassion on somebody and say, oh, I'm doing this is completely understandable and certainly consistent, isn't it, with the Savior's behavior. But it's also not unknown in other places in the Gospels where he is angry and irritable, perhaps. My view of this is that um, it just makes an interesting uh, source of meditation for a person reading this, if they know it, to think about it. Because it could have some deep meaning if we see the anger and the irritation. You know? If you and I believe that we can will change in others or control people in terms of their behavior, it often makes us very, and we learn that we cannot, it makes us very angry. Because we would wish we would be able to change people, either by just our good, uh, uh, you know, sentiments, or because we want them to be this way. And uh, if we just love them enough, they'll be this way. And here's a guy who received a healing and he was asked by Jesus not to tell anybody and he went and told everybody. What was the practical consequence of that? He could visit none of the larger towns, not only because he was being mobbed, but because the uh, local um, Roman Empire was onto him now as somebody who was causing trouble in terms of his preaching and teaching. And so it wasn't safe for him to be in those places. Some, see, some of you may wonder, if you read the Gospels, why particularly in Mark and other places, Jesus is always out, outside these places. He's never in the big ones. Right near where he grew up in Nazareth was a huge Greek town called Sepphoris. And there's no doubt that he and his dad did jobs there when, you know, here's a footnote to this. When I was in seminary, the New Testament professors would sort of speculate and say that um, it seems that because of the geography and some other things that we're learning, it's entirely possible that Jesus spoke Greek in addition to Aramaic. Sort of as a speculation. So doing continuing education over the years, it's now assumed based on the evidence that uh, has, has piled up about all of this. Why is that important? Well, it's, it is possible that he spoke some of this stuff in Greek, not just Aramaic. So some of the transmission of the oral tradition doesn't become any longer a translation, does it? And every time you translate, you interpret. So it's just an interesting thing. Sepphoris was a big Greek town. Joseph, Jesus' dad, was in the Greek. He wasn't just a carpenter. He was tecton. He was like a contractor. Another way you might say that uh, or translate that term. So he didn't go there and he didn't go to some, uh, some of these other places because he couldn't. And this man who was healed through his enthusiasm and sense of conversion uh, produced a great difficulty for Jesus. If you're one of these people who think, well, Jesus was God, he had foreknowledge, he could know everything, and so he was mad because he knew this guy was going to do it, you can go down that road if you want. But at least it's a, it is a, a uh, explication of the pastoral situation on the ground, maybe even for Mark's church. Because as we live together in community and begin to make sense of what healing means, 
sometimes we have to put up with loose cannons. You know? People who just do put out of maybe the best motives in the world but cause all kinds of difficulty. And it makes it very, very difficult. The Catholic revival in the Church of England began in 1833. And it began with the publication of 90 tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S, that were about uh, the reaffirmation of the apostolic nature of the Anglican Church, of the sacramental life, of the threefold ministry, of a number of these things. Uh, three of the principal writers were Edward Pusey, the Regis Professor of Hebrew, um, uh, John Keeble, who was uh, a, a rector nearby and was the Regent Professor of Poetry briefly, and John Henry Newman, who became later Cardinal Newman. One of the tracts that was written during this, I mentioned this, it just popped into my head, was uh, entitled Concerning Reserve and Imparting Religious Knowledge. What does that mean? Well, it may have something to do with being a little judicious about the way you express your sense of conversion and change uh, in your life to other people. That sounds like it flies right in the face of, of uh, the, the commandment to, uh, you know, convert. And it may be that there is a different way to understand that and to say we might understand Christianity as a program of attraction rather than promotion. And that means that each of us become the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be such that someday somebody is going to say to you, how do I get what you have? Because clearly this man was healed of his symptoms. He received symptom relief. But there was a deeper healing that needed to take place also in terms of his relational sensibilities. And also honoring somebody's request. You know, if somebody asked you to do something, you know, to just go ahead and do what you want to do. I mean, please, I live in the real world. This happens all the time. But it is, it is interesting always when you, when you see that. So in some ways, you need to understand, or we need to understand healing as a deeper concept than merely symptom relief. I've known people in my ministry who have been afflicted with extremely difficult maladies, both emotional and physical, and have not always achieved complete healing of those maladies but whose spirit has deepened and matured in profound ways, and it would not be irresponsible to refer to how they are later as experiencing deep healing and an intensification of that God center that we talk about all the time, our true self, you know? But we live in a country where symptom relief is what it is that we're after, it's certainly what I'm after when I'm not feeling well or I'm in extreme pain. I want to take all the money that I have out of the bank and go to the doctor and say, here, fix me now. 
right? Immediately. So how do we see that in terms of understanding healing in the deeper and fuller sense, it requires occasionally doing some hard work, which in this guy's case could have been, you know, sitting on on this enthusiasm in a way that would be uh, mutually beneficial both to he and Jesus in his ministry and would have in fact assisted in the process of building up his ministry and permitting him now to reach more people than he could when he was going to the little backwaters to stay out of the sight of the Roman authorities and not to be mobbed like a rock star. You know? So maybe that's something about why this gospel is here in terms of healing. So I guess the lesson this week might have something to do with uh, thinking about healing in a deeper and fuller sense. Know that uh, God for each of us wants us to experience the healing that is on offer uh, through the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And remember the same word that is used in both the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament for healing is the same word that is used for salvation. So the achievement of salvation is in some way some species of healing. Healing was understood in the community of Mark's Gospel and in the other Gospel writers as also a process of reconciliation the means whereby we are faithful to the church's mission to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. And so by virtue of that, healing has something to do with the ability that you and I gain to be reconcilers in big and small ways in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, in the workplace, and in other places. And so that as we do that, we begin to experience some form of healing. In other words, you look back on your life and you see from where you are now that you are different in a good way. You're a better human being. You have learned how to suffer fools a little bit more gladly. And maybe you don't need to toot your own horn as much as you used to feel you needed to. So think about this week uh, how you might do that and be a true instrument of the healing of God in the world. Amen. 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 Cafe.